0: You're listening to the Detroit is Different podcast network. They try and erase us, rename us, displace us. But we ain't faceless. Our bodies are here, bold, black, beautiful. We shed tears from the sweat of our ancestors, bask in the glory of their resistance. The blood in our veins is of legends, doctors, poets. Musicians. We will not be nameless. They cannot shame us with their propaganda, demand our silence through their genocide. We will not hide behind their trinkets, their choo choo trains, and hockey rinks. We are Detroiters, it's the black mecca of possibility. We will not go quietly into the night. We carry the fight of Joe Lewis, got the black fist to prove it. We are warriors and artists. The innovators they call arsonists in October, they run us over. When we resist them, but we're persistent. Generations of resilience, we wage love in a world out to get us productive, despite their insistence. Detroit, the city we won't let die, no matter how much
1: they try us. Welcome back to the Piper Carter podcast. You are listening to Piper Carter with our lovely co-host, the Token Millennial. What's up, Brittany? He's Pipe. How you doing? What's up? I'm good. I'm good. Um, you know what? We have such an illustrious guest today. I kind of want to like dip like right into the guest. Is that cool?
2: Let's do it. I'm excited.
1: Yeah. So um, our guest today um, is an amazing writer, author, poet, mother, Activist, just so many things, um, entrepreneur. And, um, you know, I just want to organize her, uh, leader. And I just want to, um, I, I, I haven't even like touched the surface of all the things that she is, but I'm just really, really honored and excited and grateful that we have today Miss Tawana Honeycomb Petty in the building. Hey. podcast hey <laughs> what up though hey what, what up, up though so Tawana, oh my God, I can't believe you're on the uh on our podcast. This is so exciting,
0: oh, I'm excited, I've been looking forward to this,
1: yeah, and you're like a major figure you know on the world stage um and you're also you know a a a very integral part of the arts community in Detroit as well. And so I want to ask you like 50 million questions, but first I just want to like, I wanted you to kind of give folks maybe, I don't know, just a couple of minutes of like who you are. So they, so folks can just understand like who, who is actually here right now and what is happening in the world.
0: I agree. Okay. Um, so, you know, lifelong Detroiter, um, I am a mother, uh, social justice organizer, author, and a poet. Um, in my uh, passionate work capacity, uh, I serve as director of the Data Justice Program for Detroit Community Technology Project. I'm also um, a convening member of Detroit Digital Justice Coalition, which Piper is a, a co-founder of. Um, I also um, I'm a digital civil society lab fellow at Stanford, um, uh, Stanford University's um, Center on Philanthropy, and um, and I um, am a anti-racism uh, facilitator and organizer with Detroit Equity Action Lab. I also um, uh, direct Petty Propolis, which is. Uh, it's like an artist incubator, which organizes an annual art festival and artist retreat in historic Idlewild every year. And we teach um, anti racism workshops. We teach literacy and literary workshops. Um, and yeah, I'm just trying to um, do what I can to contribute to the betterment of society, put my little mark in the world, um, and lead a world better than the way I inherited it.
1: Okay. Now, you just said like so much. There's like, this needs to be like a a, a podcast series just to dig into each one of those things. But I think um, we really want to talk to you today about your cybersecurity stuff. But definitely before we just do that, I wanted to um, just ask you a couple of questions about your writing. You know, you're an author. You've written um, several. Um not just books, but also um informational um types of uh they're more than a pamphlet, i guess a booklet, you know, like letting people know about things as well as your you know your poetry and other things and I wanted to ask you a bit um about your writing, you know um you know i have i have the pleasure you've gifted me one of your books, so you know, I, I am definitely have um, you in my collection. I'm very honored about that. But I wanted to um, kind of just dig into how you began as an author. Can you tell us about that a little bit?
0: Yeah, yeah. And uh, I'm glad you asked that because I also um, forgot to mention that I'm a co-founder and on the editorial board of Riverwise Wise Magazine. Um, and that is a magazine that uh, lifts up the stories of Detroiters. Um, and uh, ensures that our voices are amplified within uh, the community landscape and the narrative of Detroit. Uh, and we take on everything from uh, community police relations to gardening, uh, alternative visions to the current society, etc. And we distribute about 10,000 of those magazines every quarter. So pretty proud of that we're going into, we're finishing up our fourth year, actually. But um, if I... If I were to talk about um, how I, (laughs) my first time being published as a writer, I was seven, and it was my teacher who was like the English teacher slash librarian, and she really she really nurtured uh, my writing, uh, particularly poetry. And so um, I've had a passion for writing and uh, creating in the world since I was very little. I always I knew the meaning of words. You know when people were saying like you know, uh, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words, you know, they, I I think it was something like words won't hurt me or something like that. I never believed that. (laughs) I always, I always understood the power of words and growing up in Detroit, uh, which has suffered under a literal half century of targeted propaganda assault, um, a dominant negative narrative my entire life. um, I knew that there had to be some sort of countering of that narrative um, and re-spiriting of, of all of us who have come through that narrative and the folks who interact with Detroit in any capacity who have absorbed that narrative. And so I want to be part of that work. And that's uh, that's the direction I take within my poetry books, um, within uh, my readers, other books that I've created. I, um, I currently help to um, author and co-produce Uh, a toolkit for centering racial equity throughout data integration with the actionable institute for social policy Um, with our data bodies we put out a digital defense toolkit um, and of course um, uh, the work that we put out through uh, Detroit community technology project Um, all of those things are tremendously important to me in uh, shaping and countering uh, the dominant narratives that exist and pushing back against anti-racism, particularly anti-black racism.
1: Wow, um, and you're such an amazing writer, right? Like, I don't know, Brittany. You have you. Well, first of all, Tawana just named about like maybe like seven or eight different types of uh, what would you call them? Output, you know that uh, that she's created, but. Yes. Um, but it'll be, it'll be so awesome. You know, Brittany, I want, um, I got to make sure that you get a copy, but also read, um, some of her, uh, creative, oh, I would love to. creative writing. Yeah. The, her creative I writing is amazing.
2: I, I can't wait to get a list. I was just going to say, like, I, I find it interesting that you said that through your writing, you know, you, you fight things off like the propaganda, um, of the city that we get and it's always funny when you have family reunions or you're, you're engaging with people about Detroit and then when they come to Detroit it's almost like a 360 difference in what they realize Detroit is from how they perceived it and it's like always been one of those like cities where you have to kind of come and visit it and understand its layout and actually see black people in the stores black people in the banks you know black people everywhere so I think it's awesome that your passion in writing, you use that to, you know, as a social responsibility to give a better outlook on the city. So I wanted to ask you to, you know, tell us a little bit about your perspective about your zip code, you know, what high school you went to and, you know, your perspective of Detroit, um, just, you know, based on your environment growing up and, you know, where where you are today.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, I, I have been in Detroit my whole life. I did, I, I dipped my toe out into the burbs, maybe five of my 44 years. That's part Um, of it, right? (laughs) (laughs) You know, because um, as you were saying, like, I grew up being told that you couldn't make anything of yourself in Detroit. You had to get up and get out of Detroit. Like It was was almost like the curriculum that was taught was grow up and get out. That was the curriculum. Um, And I internalized that. And I thought that, you know, as soon as I was able to, I needed to move somewhere out of here, especially after I had my son. But mm-hmm. I quickly realized that this was my heartbeat. Detroit was my heartbeat. That's not to say that at you know some point in the near future or the later future or whatever who who knows what's to come, but that I might not venture out somewhere, try another country, try another state, you know. But mm-hmm. um, but my life's blood has been here, and um, I grew up mostly on the west side. But my dad's family was always east, and for the last little over a decade, I've been on the East side and I love my city. I mean, I understand the circumstances um, that we're under. I understand that quality of life issues create quality of life crime. I understand these things. And once you understand the root causes of particular situations, you look at how to solve those in a different way. So I'm not a person who thinks that reactionary uh, policing practices or mass surveillance or um, or those sorts of things are going to resolve uh, some of the conditions that we face in Detroit. I understand that if you resource communities that you will then create vibrant communities and it doesn't take a lot of imagination. That little brief spent, uh, stint that I spent in the suburbs where, you know, it's grocery stores on every other corner and where the schools were very well resourced and, you know, there was rec centers for the rec centers, um, I understood that that is why those neighborhoods appeared to be more vibrant. And so, um, so you know, those are the things that I advocate for in my writing. Those are the things that I advocate for in my social justice activism. Um, and those are the things that um, I tell anyone whether I've traveled into other countries, or outside of the city, or even when talking to residents who are still kind of a bit indoctrinated into that, uh, that dominant negative narrative for one reason or another. And so, yeah, so I'm an East sider now, but I claim all of Detroit. You ask me what set I'm repping. I'm saying the D all the way through. So, hey. uh, <laughs> you know, so I don't preface any side of town over the other. Nice. Great to hear.
1: Yeah. And so, um, I wanted to just, so you were on the board and helped shape um, a really important space that is on the East Side that is preserving a very, very, very important legacy, um, the Boggs Center. I wanted to know if you could tell us about that space and, um, and maybe even just a little bit about who James and Grace Lee Boggs were.
0: Yeah, yeah. So I had the honor of serving on the James and Grace Lee Boggs uh board for nine years. Um I just recently retired. I'm using air quotes because I'm like not i am I'm I'm like in the mid range of age when it comes to the board members, but um, but the James and Grace Lee Boggs Center uh was founded. Um after jimmy and grace lee boggs uh james boggs aka jimmy being a black auto worker revolutionary um and uh grace being uh, an asian american woman who's also very heavily involved in the black power movement and uh they've always held a space for like political ideology and deep diving into the moment uh one of the uh one of the main driving uh uh ways that the box center looks at things is uh what time is it on the clock of the world so there's always this kind of analysis around like the current moment but not just the current moment in detroit but how does it tie to the global movement and what are some ways that we can shape and plug into uh a growing movement one of the uh final things that grace was writing about and um and saying before she died in 2015 was, uh, listen to the young people. So she was saying like, we needed to be listening to the young people and we needed to be um, uh, following um, and also offering some political education um, and analysis, uh, tying young people back to the movement, uh, the historical movement, as well as uh, supporting and lifting up the current movement. Um, and so, yeah, I think that she would be thriving in this moment if she were still alive to see so many young people out in the streets. Um, so many young people involved in, uh, in, you know, in thinking about Brittany as an example, uh, thinking about cybersecurity and uh, mm. how we protect data and all those things like Grace stayed uh, tuned in to the political moment. And unfortunately I didn't get to meet uh, Jimmy because he had passed on while I was still in high school. And I wasn't uh, i wasn't really involved in too much into like political or social justice activism back then. Um, and he died in 1993. So, but I have read his writings. I've watched videos with his speeches. I've uh, fully engaged myself in his political analysis. Um, and I'm very grateful to have come through that kind of uh, coaching uh, and and way of uh, thinking. And so, you know, I moved on in a sense because of a lot of the things that I have learned through there and I'm applying uh, that analysis and continuing to grow my analysis based on what I learned through the Box Center. And RiverWise is an output of the Box Center. So those are other ways that I'm continuing to contribute to the movement, utilizing the things that I've learned. And uh, Grace's anniversary of her death was just on October 5th. Uh, so it would be five years uh, since I she say. passed.
1: Mm-hmm. I I say. Oh, wow. That's so powerful. Um, yes. and, and thanks for, you know, we're kind of giving this, uh, you know, I want to say roundabout way of, you know, getting to the meat of it, but I just once you get into it, I just want folks to understand the um I'm gonna use this overused word, intersectionality of, you know, what it means to be a black woman from Detroit, <laughs> you know, and doing this work. And You know, we always talk about how powerful Detroiters are, how powerful Black Detroiters are, how powerful Black Detroit women are. And here we are, get a chance to meet one of our own (laughs) hometown heroes, you know, Uh, and it's just so rich. Like we're getting the Cliff Notes version. I just want y'all to understand. But uh, (laughs) so rich. But I wanted to also, because you as a mother are um very you know clued into young where young people are as well because you have a really you know powerful relationship with your son and i wanted you share a lot of stories about your son who is so dynamic and um just an amazing human being and i wanted you know as a mother for you to just share some jewels uh with some some parents you know, from some of the things that you've been able, um, I'm going to use a word like uh, to accomplish, you know, in your relationship with your son. And I wanted you to like, can you share some of that?
0: Yeah, I, you know, this, this might be hard for parents to hear, but you're not always right. Um, mm-hmm. And so I raised, a, I raised a son who was not satisfied with do as I say, <laughs> not as I do. Um, And, you know, I didn't always appreciate that when he was younger and I was younger. But um, as he got older, I really valued the fact that he challenged me Um, and not in a disrespectful way. Right. Uh, I'm grateful that I was able to become mature enough to nurture his critical thinking, you know. And so, you know, I put him in debate and uh that backfired on me a lot because uh, <laughs> <laughs> he was really good at uh at struggling with me um but but he's very studied and so there would be moments where i would say something and he would say well according to you know my understanding mom and based on what i've read and you you perk me up when you do that to me so um so my own son was has been one of my greatest educators um in thinking about the world right and I had an understanding that he was on the front lines of what was happening out here, and so um, to be able to come to that kind of—I call it maturity—because I was immature, uh, much like most parents who have a child at 19. Um, uh, I was—I was very immature, and I grew with him, you know. And so, um, you know, there is no there is no real guidebook on how to be a parent, but I would say you treat them as a human, a full human being from the onset, the day they are born, they don't grow up to be human when they become adults. They're human the whole time. And they have ideas and they have experiences and they have uh, questions and, they, and, they're, and they're, they're very brilliant. And a lot of times uh, our young people's um, uh, imaginations are squashed by our immaturity. And so um, I'm really grateful to have a tremendous relationship with my son where we can talk about anything He can call me and talk about his view of the world. Uh, Actually, like um, lately, we were talking about Ibrahim Kendry's book um, on racism. I'm blanking on the name, but um, we had some differing ideologies and we spent a good hour struggling through those. And so. Um, Yeah, I really value that. And I think one of the hardest things for us to do, especially as parents, if we're struggling financially, if we're working way too hard. So I don't want to be crapping on parents because it's, you know, it's tough. It's a tough thing. It's a, it's a hefty responsibility. But one of the most wonderful things you can do is listen, is listen to a young person, listen to their ideas, let them have um, hard times. Like I remember one time I had a friend over, I think my son was in ninth grade, ninth or 10th grade. And he came in, he said something, I disagreed with him and he stormed off to his room and closed the door. And my, my friend said, oh, it's no way my child would have just walked away and went in the room and closed the door like that to me. And I said, why? I said, I'm allowed an opportunity to, to, to cool off. I'm allowed an opportunity to, um, to resolve my emotions in the way that I need. Mm. Why shouldn't he be allowed to do that? And what benefit is it to us having a conversation right now if we're both upset? You know, I'm going to overreact. He's going to overreact. And that is, we understand that with adults, but we don't seem to give young people the same leeway to have those emotions that we have. And one final thing I'll say is I was really grateful that I um, snapped out of this whole like punishing him phase of like, you know, if he did something "quote unquote" wrong, then you know, spanking him phase very early on because um, I one of the things I remember because I am such a student and I read so much and um, and I you know I'm always studying uh, I'm always growing right and so I, I recall one day um, there was a situation with a parent uh, who was a, a teammate of mine at work. And she was saying something about, you know, how she has spanked her son and like it was a bunch of parents and they were congregating. I would. have, Yeah, that's right. And, you know, do you know the things we do? And so I said, um, how would you feel? I was like, you just got written up. Right. You know, this was a, a employee who was a, a boss had written him up. Not saying I agree with the write up or not, but they had got written up. And I said, how would you have felt if the boss would have came out and just smacked you upside your head because they disagreed with what you did at work? And they were like, well, oh, it's no way nobody would just come smack me upside my head. And I said, well, that's how you treat children. Mm-hmm. You disagree with what they did for whatever reason. A lot of times they don't even understand why it's a negative thing that they did. And then you just, your, your recourse is to just harm them. And I said, and then you, then you wonder when we grow up and we don't have the social skills to have a dialogue without violence. You know? It's a fact. Yeah, it's funny hearing you say that. That's what I drew from all that,
2: that, you know, we as adults, like, we do give each other chances and more of a opportunity to express ourselves, but it, a lot of the time doesn't
0: even go well because of how we were raised, you know? So, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, we can't deep dive. We can't, as soon as someone disagrees with us, it's like, oh, where the gloves at, you know? <laughs> and it's like, guess what? The world goes round when you can have a critical... Dialogue and you can struggle through ideas, and that is when ideas get sharpened. And it's not to say that you're gonna always agree with each other. And there are some harmful people with some harmful ideas. So I'm not romanticizing that, but I'm saying generally, um, we haven't even developed the social skills to have just a, a, a general debate um around differences of opinion, and that's because we've been taught, you know, by this country. Uh, you know, <laughs> the violence of this country to respond violently when when things don't go our way. And so, and we, and we uh, because of this lineage, this long legacy of violence um, that was inflicted upon our ancestors and, you know, and the folks who inflicted that violence, like there's just this kind of cycle of violence that comes up through generations. And those are things that we're going to have to struggle through um,
1: if we're going to create the society we all deserve. So you are this really incredible, you know, balanced woman. And you've come from, you know, uh, you always talk about how you came from the corporate sector. Can you speak about your transition from being this person who was, you know, doing well in corporate to um being in the movement and now having your own organization and um like you know and all of that can you just give us a little bit of understanding about that
0: yeah I mean I you know like I said I was taught to grow up and get out of here get you know get get out of here and make something make quote unquote something of yourself and uh that didn't involve poetry, right? <laughs> uh nobody was telling me that if I wrote books or or became a poet that I would be successful. Um and so, you know, I went into corporate America. I, I used to at one point run the largest creditors' rights law firm in the country and I was in my 20s. And so, you now I was a manager um in two departments, real estate default group and bankruptcy. These are These are in my, you know, with my political understanding now, these are terrible places to work. These are are harmful institutions, but when you're growing up and you're making money and you're employee of the month and employee of the year and, you know, you're able to support your family in particular types of ways and you're able to move out of the city, that's a positive. That's looked at as a positive. Nobody really cares what type of job you have, right? And so um, I started to see you know, as the, as I was becoming more and more conscious, I was in a poetry scene and I, I, uh, I credit the poetry scene for helping to raise my consciousness. You know, you can't go to poetry slams and not hear somebody really spitting some super knowledge, you know? Mm. Um, and so I started to venture into the poetry scene and, um, and I was always, theoretically, I was always writing about the right things. Um, but I hadn't internalized those things and I didn't see myself um as a opposition to the things that i was writing uh and so i don't know it it was almost like that light bulb grace used to say that light bulb goes off and you you never really know when it's going to happen but you know it's going to involve conversation um and and hearing people and, and seeing people And so um, as I started to grow in my consciousness, I started to look at that job sideways. Like I would go in there (laughs) and like, what are these people talking about? Like, oh my God, like, how could you be so evil? You know, it's kind of like, it's it's like when I teach uh, white people um, anti-racism, right? And, and you know, and I follow up with some of them and they come back and they're like, oh, my God, I despise the people in my family now. And I'm like, well, you know, the goal isn't necessarily for you to despise the people in your family. The goal is to sharpen your analysis so that you can have a better argument with them and you can kind of uh, bring them to your side of history. Right. I mean, you can't bring everybody with you, but uh, you can bring more people with you than you can and so, uh, but that's how I was back then. I was like this, I was newly conscious. I was, I was starting to see the world a different way. And I was in there like, oh, it was almost like, you know, you walked into a place that stink, you know what I'm saying? Because, uh, you had this new fresh set of eyes. Um, and so I just knew that I had to get out of there. I didn't know what I was going to get out of there and do, but I knew I couldn't be there anymore. I couldn't be contributing to, you know, um, evictions and foreclosures and, uh, working for banks and mortgage companies, um, and those sort of things. I had internalized the analysis that so many people still have, which is if they just pay their bills, they wouldn't end up here. Like that's what I was taught. Even as my family was struggling, you know, to make ends meet because my mother had me so young, we were still taught that, you know, if we, if we got evicted or if we, if our water was turned off or if our electricity was turned off, it was our fault. It didn't matter that it was hundreds of thousands of people suffering that way, and that we need we should probably be looking at the system as a whole you don't you don't you're not taught that you're taught to individualize your suffering and your pain um and so you know that's I was indoctrinated into that, and once that veil came over my eye off off from over my eyes, um I knew that I needed to engage myself in something more meaningful, and so that's how I started to kind of search. Uh, for a new reality, and um, and and that's how I got involved in social justice.
1: Powerful, it's powerful, right? Yeah, it is. Because you was making good money. Yeah, yeah, I was making really good money. <laughs> and 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 it and it and it um and you're like, how do you say, it? ascending in like you know your uh power, you're ascending in your status, and that could be very challenging you know especially as a black person especially as a black woman yes and pivot and be like well I'm gonna go try to help my people Yep. Yeah.
2: yeah I one thing to like to we we have our I don't want to say we have our conscious spaces but I think at some point if you come from a certain background and certain seeds were planted it catches up to a certain like i guess i'm just going through that phase myself i'm 30 i'll be 31 on my birthday in november and
1: hey.
2: <laughs> and i'd say post college cuz college can be kind of like a ding dong ping pong in your head cuz you're learning so many different viewpoints from a european you know perspective still you know what i mean so you yeah. get that chance to kind of like actually take the critical uh thinking that you learned how to do in college and apply it to what you really want to learn and then it's one thing to apply that, right? I mean, it's one thing to learn it, but then when you look at what you're absorbing and then you apply it, it's like a whole nother conversation. You know what I mean? There's so much that goes into that, you know? That's all, that's you know that's why I say it's powerful because, man, that's, it's really deep and, and layered. But, you know, like you said, it was a light switch. And, you know, people say it's nothing to it but to just do it, you know what I mean? But there's still a lot of critical thinking that goes into that.
0: And 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 let me tell you something. One thing that happens to me, and uh, you know, and I give this advice a lot now, um, because I, I'm almost, and, and this is full transparency, I'm almost back towards, well, maybe half transparency, because I'm not about to tell y'all how much, but um, <laughs> but I'm almost <laughs> back to you know uh, bringing in the same amount of income doing the things that I'm passionate about, contributing to my community and, um, and being on the right side of history that I was when I was doing horrible things. Wow. Um, you know, and being in, being in a, a corporate, not saying that, you know, the nonprofit world is perfect. It's It's a bit of an industrial complex too, but I'm understanding it more as reparations in a sense than I was back then. And one of the things that happened when I quit out of corporate, I suffered tremendously. I mean, I was homeless. Um, I, you know, I was, I was, I just got my first car <laughs> the first time in eight years, like a couple months ago, but that was because like, I had really internalized that I had to suffer that had to suffer financially that I had to really be like, in order for me to be genuine and committing to this work that I had to be, I had, I could, I had to endure and maybe that was necessary for a spell, um, but I, I realized that that wasn't healthy either. That people who are doing this work, putting their life on the line, uh, uh, putting their necks on the line to challenge systems, uh, Black people in particular, we deserve to be resourced. Um, and so mm. I have I've reached a, a happy medium of like saying like I actually should be able to afford my bills and support people um, and bring as many people up into the fold as possible. And so I'm fully committed. Um, to making sure that the work that I um, associate myself with uh, has the resources it need. If I have the, if I have the capability um, to, to funnel resources, then that's what I'm going to do. If I have the capability to nurture artists and, and, you know, help them to become, Authors. That's what I'm going to do if I have the capability of, of teaching young people who are having, a, who are struggling, and elders who are struggling with reading, or really would like to, you know, venture into poetry so they can strengthen their voice. That's what I'm going to do. But I don't have to uh, be a quote unquote starving artist and out here um, not able to um, have a meaningful life in order to do that. And so I think that that is one of the things that I've, I've struggled most with. Um, I'm just now, just now over the last three years, like accepting that I can get, I can get a grant and make meaningful use with it. Um, It's Mm. one of the reasons why I've been able to organize the festival, but I was so adverse to money because of the world that I had Mm. went into um, that I wasn't able to contribute the way that I wanted to. I wasn't able to, to to pour into the people the way that I've been able to the last almost uh, I'd say maybe seven years. Um and so, yeah, so you know, it's it's a it's a fine balancing act, right? You you have to stay, you have to stay very clear, very tuned in, you have to consistently study um and you have to make sure that you do not become the middle class voice uh, for the people. And that's why coalition building and tapping in and tuning in and centering frontline voices, um, and people who are most impacted, even if you yourself was previously impacted, um, is going to be tremendous. And that's one of the reasons why we really value Riverwise is because there's so many stories in Detroit that don't get told because people aren't seen as the people who have the expertise to tell the stories. And so I know that, um, I know that those things are available to the people because we were able to find the resources to put them into the world. And so, yeah, so, you know, it's a, it's a fine balancing act. Um, but I just wanted to say that because, um, I'm very cognizant that I, that my, the perception of me as like a grassroots person, um, uh, should be, should evolve right at this point. Um, because I do direct a program. I do run an art, what I call an art incubator. I do a lot of things that bring me resources to survive um, and thrive. Um, And so even though I'm putting my neck on the line, I'm heavily surveilled and all the things that come with being social justice organizers, I'm very big on being transparent about the fact that um, I'm doing well. I'm doing okay. Um, I love that. Yeah. That's really inspirational. Like, wow. Like, I feel like
2: you understand like your responsibility is to most people what you're saying about being transparent isn't a responsibility like I mean it's not I'm not saying to you that if you weren't transparent like you're like a bad person but I do think with the 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 in, in intricacy of the work you're doing and how you're doing it and your path like I feel like you somehow some way have understood that your transparency comes with the work you're doing is that a fair assessment
0: yeah, absolutely. I mean, if I'm going to be honest about the type of society that I want to co-create with all the other folks who are trying to to reshape this world, then honesty has to be part of that. Um, and you, all you have to do is look at our government <laughs> and know what happens when transparency is lacking. Um, yes. And so, yeah, so it's one of those things, like I said, I'm not out here like telling exact figures or and I, and I can't run off into the sunset, let's be clear. Um, you know, I just mean no, I could pay my bills and have consistent food in the refrigerator. But the, trans- <laughs> the transparency of the process, though,
2: you know what I mean? You're, yeah. You're, like you said, the evolution. You know, that right there is a. It's. I think that's why. Not to digress too much, but that's why I think people appreciate um, Barack Obama because of what he represents. What What that vi- What that visual is? Uh, that visual is so. We are very visual people. So when you break down the process and are are able to be transparent and confident uh, within yourself, that does so much. It goes a long way, you know?
0: Yeah, and if we even just speak on Barack Obama as an example, the moment he stepped into the White House and had to shrink from being who he had been, Mm. was the moment that people started to resent him, right? Uh, and I'm yeah. not saying there, of course, they're a diehard, like he could never do anything wrong, people, but any every human does things wrong, right? I mean, yeah. and we and anybody who can't appreciate the position he was in wasn't really looking hard enough. Not to say that he shouldn't be held accountable for connecting to the establishment and the harm yep. that the establishment has done. Um yep. but what I'm saying is like I have a hard enough I had a hard enough time being a black person in corporate. I can't imagine being a black person at the white house. Um, and so there's a whole layer of things. Uh, What we talk about in the movement is heightening the contradictions and him becoming a black president, uh, at the head of this country is the one of the largest contradictions one could have. Um, I think that, you know, what we saw him, we saw him put on a a, a bit of a mask in that, in that role. And then the minute he came out of that role, kind of like, whew, shake it off and try to get back to who he was yeah. um that's what happens when you indoctrinate yourself within those types of systems and unfortunately we still need people in those systems to yep. either uproot them transform them get rid of them implode them whatever however whatever but it's not going to happen with a, without us in some yep. way shape or form
2: it's ironic you say that because you literally should. I don't know people tell you or have asked you to run for a, uh, like a public uh, office or something. Yeah. i would I'd be, be no. amazing. Man. <laughs> like, Oh my God. No. Like it's so refreshing. Like it's so the age we're in, like I'm telling you, like it's amazing. Like it's a, so yeah, that's cool. That's I like funny. it out here.
0: I like it out here,
2: but <laughs> yeah, I bet.
1: <laughs> yeah. So let's talk about, cause you mentioned being surveilled and you know this new life that you live or this current life you live of um informing people and the organization you've created can you tell us um what is the organization you've created and you know what what does it do uh let's just do let's just uh ask that first question
0: Yeah, so, um, well, I was hired in to Detroit Community Technology Project. Um, I started off as like contracting with Detroit Community Technology Project back in 2015. Um, And, you know, that uh, Detroit Community Technology Project, it was kind of an outgrowth of the Detroit Digital Justice Coalition, as well as the Allied Media Project, and came out of this kind of a call for there to be some centered focus on, you know, data privacy, digital access, um, and just equitable open data, and uh, and those sorts of things within the city of Detroit. And when I was hired in, I was hired in as a researcher, community researcher, um, who was going to be looking at the ways that our data um, and information is collected, stored, and shared by government institutions. Um, and so it was a three-city participatory research project uh, across Detroit, L.A., and Charlotte. Uh, and it was three community organizers at the head of that research. And we partnered with two academics. <clears throat> who, um, and our goal was to talk to community members and just find out, like, how are you experiencing the use of your data and your information? Is it preventing you from making a livelihood is it helping you contribute to a livelihood? How do you how are you experiencing your information being stored and shared? Well, we um, because we, you know, we hip hop babies, we named our um our project ODB. So it's our data bodies, but you know, it's ODB. So um, so what came out of that research, uh my to my surprise and benefit and also, you know, I say gift and a curse was that while I was doing the research in Detroit, Project Greenlight was coming off the ground in Detroit. So I'm learning from community members who are telling me like, I feel surveilled. I feel tracked. I feel like my, you know, the smallest mistake I've ever made is being used to prevent me from getting water, from getting housing, from getting, you know, access to resources. Um, la the org- organizer mary ellen la was hearing the same thing she was more prominently focused on skid row in detroit and was hearing that they were community members were saying like we are super surveilled like we are unhoused um we're being tracked we're being targeted in in uh blue um also known as tamika in north carolina was hearing the same thing in north carolina and so like we were, we came with this running theme that Folks wanted to be seen and not watched, um, and so we were trying to within that uh, work, put together uh, some resources that communities across all three cities could leverage and use um, to kind of think about these systems. Um, but we didn't want to put out every type of survival mechanism that they disclosed to us. you know so you know you have some people tell me this is how I navigate the system. And I, you know, I might be living within a capitalist system right now, but I'm not going to be dictated to put out all of our community members' um, uh, secrets just because I'm a researcher, and you know, and and that comes with producing things. And so, um, so we put out a digital defense playbook. Um, That was kind of like a way of lifting up those community members' stories um, and also sharing some practices across three cities of how folks have navigated the systems in ways that don't further uh, put them in harm's way. And so um, as we were doing that, uh, Project Greenlight in Detroit, uh, the public-private surveillance partnership with. Uh, local businesses and Detroit police was coming off the ground. And originally it was eight or nine surveillance cameras at gas stations that stayed open late. Right. And so it was like, you know, I wasn't really paying too, too much attention to it at the time, because like I said, this eight or nine gas stations, they're staying open late. You know, I'm a woman. I, you know, I, I, I'm in Detroit. Um, And, you know, I like to have some well-lit gas stations. I just wasn't, paying much attention to it. But as they started to go from like the eight or nine, uh, surveillance cameras connected to law enforcement and ramp them up. And then the mayor came out saying like, he wanted to make it mandatory for all businesses. Then my ears started to perk up. And so, uh, Greenlight Black Futures, um, which is, uh, um, uh, part of, uh, BYP 100 Black Youth Project 100 was also saying like, whoa, wait a minute, now they want to make this mandatory, what does that actually mean? And so we started to be in conversation with them. And another attorney, uh, an uh, attorney, Eric Williams with Detroit Justice Center, was kind of like, at the time, he was out there from the very beginning saying like, what What is? What do you mean real-time crime centers and surveillance cameras? And that was even when it was only the eight or nine. And so we all just kind of got together And started to think about the various ways that we could impact the narrative about this, right? But it was moving so fast. So like I said, 2016, it was eight or nine surveillance cameras. And the next thing you knew, it was 400. Next thing you knew, it was 500. Um, And so now we currently sit at over 2,000 surveillance cameras in over 700 businesses. And it's no longer just gas stations, it's rec centers and churches and medical facilities and public housing. And so it just has become so ubiquitous. Um, And so we spent the last several years resisting that. Um, But at the height of us um, resisting that, and part of the resistance is educating the public, because until you can get the public to be squarely on your side and to thoroughly understand these systems, you're kind of just running on a a treadmill, right you're you might get exhausted, but you're not gonna go anywhere and so um we learned that face recognition was part of that. Uh, we learned that um, because uh, I had comrades at Georgetown Center for Privacy and Technology reached out and said, Did you know that those cameras are using face recognition? mind blowing to find that out, and that was a year and a half. After they uh DPD has started using that technology, and so that really ramped up our um our resistance. We started to attend the Board of police commissioner meetings every week, and I still attend them um, uh to voice our opinions to try to get face recognition banned. Uh, we attend the city council meetings trying to get face recognition banned. uh we consulted on legislation in at state and federal level, and those are, there are still bills out there um, that could potentially pass, uh, there are no biometric bills on, um, public housing that Rashida Tlaib championed. Um, there are, uh, there's a state bill, uh, that could put a five-year moratorium on, uh, all uses of Detroit police, um, and government use of face recognition, um, that was championed by state rep Isaac Robinson, but he has since passed away due to COVID-19. But I believe that there are other, um, uh, legislators who are going to pick that bill up. Um, there are federal legislation that's out there that would prevent all government use and uh, police use of face recognition. And we've been on—we've consulted other cities and other states um, on uses. And to date, 13 cities have banned. All of them are predominantly white. Um, but those are our comrades, and we we celebrate the fact that they were able to ban. But we lift up the fact that they were able to ban because those cities are predominantly white. And so um, face recognition being a biometric surveillance uh, that allows police to uh, target uh, images, um, target video, and extract images from Project Greenlight uh, to try and pursue a case for um, what is supposed to be only violent crimes at this point because they had to put a stricter policy in place uh, due to all the social justice activism but um, there have already been misidentifications due to um, uh, uh, folks being arrested that did not commit the crimes. Uh, And this is something that we were warning from the beginning because face recognition misidentifies darker skin tones. A comrade of mine, Joy Boulamwini, actually a few comrades of mine, Joy Boulamwini, Timnit Gebru, and Deb Raji uh, were the architects of that research out of MIT that discovered that that was there was a racial disparity uh, using this technology, and so um, so we brought them uh, to uh, Claire Garvey from Georgetown. We brought all these voices. Uh, to the fold to inform and let our city government know that this was going to be a harm, that that misidentifications misidentifi- were going to happen, and yet and still they doubled down. And so now what we face now is two known misidentification misidentifications, Michael Oliver and Robert Williams, and a potential third, uh, which is a Black woman, which uh, I'm not going to identify her name because that case is still uh, working its way through, but we can pretty much assume that there are many, many misidentifications uh, using face recognition. And I'll just finally say this because I want to make sure folks thoroughly understand what we are dealing with. What we're dealing with uh, is a perpetual lineup of pretty much every single person in the state of Michigan or who has ever taken a state ID or driver's license in the state of Michigan since 1999 you are in a face recognition database, either in the state, uh, at the state level or a DPD. Um, And anytime they're looking for someone for a potential crime, they uh, have access to your image in order to flip through. So it's almost like you're in a mug book, a virtual mug book, every time they're looking for someone uh, to, um, to arrest for a crime. And that is extremely dangerous. Um and I'll use Robert Williams case as an example. He he lives in Farmington Hills. He he wasn't even in Detroit. Um, and he was picked up at his home in front of his children and arrested and not told why. Um, because the algorithm the the uh, technology had identified him as someone who committed a crime and he wasn't even in detroit so um so folks who are in the state of Michigan or who or who may have moved out of the state of Michigan, but their ideas in that database because they lived here at one point um, uh, in the nineties um, should be really thinking deeply about the impact that this technology has on you on our communities um, and should be against it.
1: You said like so much. I have like 50 million questions, but I just want you to repeat a couple of uh, strong facts. I mean, you gave so many good facts, but um, I want to just go back. uh, If you could uh, break down just a little bit, because so in what, well, um, you know, I've been going um, door to door now for, I don't know what, three years or something like that. Um, just with different information, a lot, a lot of with the green light flyer. This year, we going around again. Uh, you know, as we're doing the voter uh, registration door to door in communities, and just you know informing folks about the green light. And when we're going to the doors, people are really uh, in favor. Of the green light, because in our communities, as you know, many of our elders and different people who have been terrorized um are like, "Look, we need the police, we need national guard, and then when we're coming around talking about defund police and you know <laughs> and get rid of green light, we sound crazy like space people, but um, I wanted to kind of dig into the nefariousness of the program you mentioned. And it's a point that we really uh, one of the points that we try to highlight, and it's that um, you know the police department is uh, an arm of the government, right? It's the strong arm of the government, mm-hmm. and so uh, public monies, your i.e. your taxes mm-hmm. that go to the community, a portion goes to the police to pay police salaries and such. And so part of the police's duty, uh, when they talk about protect and serve, unfortunately, they're not talking about us. They're talking about property and business. And so these business owners are in favor of this green light. Uh, well, I shouldn't say they're in favor of it, but they're they're extorted pretty much to uh, take the green light, whether they want it or not, because they've been given an ultimatum that if they don't uh, take the green light, which is a uh, product of a privately owned company that the Detroit Police Department has an account with, that they also get a kickback from. Uh, they tell the businesses that if they don't take the green light, then they, you know they're not going to be around in an emergency. So I kind of wanted you to like dig into that a little bit, if you can, around um, what's wrong with that, right? Because even when we're going around, when we tell that to people, uh, the main thing they say is, well, that's okay if that's what it's going to take to be safe. But I wanted you to kind of, the way you articulate that point, I wanted you to kind of give that to folks so that um, they could just hear this, this powerful perspective.
0: Yeah. I mean, so I would just say that those businesses are prioritized. They're priority one. And so if we talk, if we're talking to residents about safety, which I don't like to conflate surveillance with safety, they're not the same thing. Um, and those residents can probably tell you that they don't feel any more safe now that we spent $30 million on real-time crime centers than they felt $30 million ago. Um, and so um, the 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 conflation between surveillance and safety uh has created a a um a, a disparity, um, a deepened the disparity that already exists in our community. Uh also, you know, I'm somewhat sympathetic to businesses, but not as sympathetic to businesses as I am to the elders you're talking about who are not feeling safe. Uh those businesses, you know, most don't don't live in the city. They come to the city, and they make their money, and they take their money back to their communities, and they have paid into a system that prioritizes them over the residents. Um, And so uh, that is the conversation that needs to be had with these residents, um, is we've spent millions and millions of dollars on these systems, and you are not, you don't feel any safer than you felt before, which is why one of the reasons why, you know, the campaign that we're engaged with, uh, green chairs, not green lights, is asking community members to come back to the front porches. If you are looking out your window or you're sitting on your front porch and you're watching the the kids in the neighborhood make it to school, then chances are they're going to be safe. If you're sitting on your front porch or looking out your window and you're watching the elder come in at night, uh, from the grocery store, chances are they're gonna be safe. If you live on a street and you know that the neighbor next door doesn't have water, electricity or food and you support them and that chances are you're gonna be safe because they're not gonna be starving. Um, and so we know the things that create safety in our communities and this, this consistent narrative that somehow by putting us in an open air prison, uh, with surveillance cameras all over the city and we're watched like a fishbowl is somehow going to create safety is uh, is a misnomer. Um, law enforcement is going to respond after the incident. That is the way that it works. They're not sitting there uh, waiting to stop someone from harming you. And the surveillance cameras are not gonna create that uh, circumstance. Um, there isn't even the possibility for them to watch the cameras, uh, you, you know, do we don't even have the capacity let's just say we thought that law enforcement was safety there is no capacity for law enforcement to watch every angle of this city and jump out in front of whatever circumstance that uh that might be creating harm to community members and so We need to remove those resources from systems like Project Greenlight, from militarized policing, and put them into the resources that ensure that community members can have some quality of life so that they aren't committing quality of life crime, so that they aren't looking at the elder on their street as breakfast because they haven't eaten in a week. Um, And so I just think that it's really important that uh, this conversation happened with businesses and happened with community members to think about how we look out for each other. Your, your local gas station uh, owner being behind a bulletproof glass um, and ready to pull a gun on you over a bag of potato chips uh, with priority policing is not going to create safety for you. Um, and so I just think, though, that the analysis needs to be deepened that folks need to really start to think about moments when they felt safe. And whenever we have that conversation with young people or elders, we ask them, when is a moment that you felt safe in the city? They'll tell you is when their neighborhoods were vibrant, when they had block clubs and when they had community uh, gatherings, when they knew their neighbors on their street, when they had well-lit um, uh, street lights. Um, that they felt safer, when when they knew the kids that were walking to the school bus, when they had school buses. Um, and so, you know, we know enough about the things that uh, that make our, our neighbors and our um, elders and our young people um, feel seen. Um, we don't have to keep investing in the things that trace and track and monitor um, and watch them.
1: Yeah, thanks for that. I just got two more questions that I'm going to let Brittany rip. Um, I wanted to also dig a little bit deeper um, because also, too, when you talk about not conflating, you know, the safety with the surveillance, um, a lot of, uh, you know, the culture, I should say, now is people are on... um, you know, doing lives all the time. Um people like you were talking about people's faces being in the databases of, you know, a lot of things through whether it's the socials or, you know, uh the way uh that the you know, the green light is 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 bringing folks straight to the uh the mugshot arena. But um how do we have this very serious conversation about surveillance specifically and how nefarious surveillance is when we have this modern culture of people consistently videoing everything?
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, so I'm not of the mindset that we need to stop living our lives because these people are are abusing us. Um, and that's why I'm in the work that I'm in. That's why I'm in data justice work. That's why I write about the abuses of Facebook. That's why um, uh, we challenge um, uh, privacy policies um, and push for equitable open data and transparency um, and push against uh, extraction of our biometrics through face recognition uh, and those sorts of things. Um, we we should not ha- be have to be relegated to the margins um, and into a corner, not, um, not being able to enjoy innovation because they harm and abuse it. Um, and so, yeah, so, you know, that's the mindset. I mean, I'm not gonna, I don't want to victim blame the people who are looking for some kind of hope. Um, I want to hold accountable the nefarious players who are within, uh, these corporations who are extracting and abusing our data, um, and abusing, uh, and, and leveraging, um, uh, the things that we put out there for, uh, for nefarious purposes. And so, yeah, there's a lot of things that I wish folks wouldn't put on social media. Um, and there are a lot, you know, one, one perfect example. Um, and I was just having this conversation with elders earlier today. And, you know, it really makes me cringe every time I see like a protest photo or a protest video online, because I know that chances are a lot of those folks will be targeted after the, you know, when, when things, when, folks have done uh ha- having outrage about the moment and people have gone on with their lives um but I also recognize that if it wasn't for national television airing the water hosing of black people um uh in the 60s and watching the dogs you know uh, uh ripping us apart that we wouldn't have had a global movement against uh racism at that time and made some some tremendous leaps um uh within society and so it's it's a gift and a curse, right? It's like people didn't want us to have um, television because, and there is a legitimate argument behind that because of the in the psychological indoctrination that happens uh, with television. But I also think that we have to be able to utilize the the positive parts of innovation. We have to politicize um, our neighbors um, and stay in conversation and balance that. With uh with real life interaction, um, it's just like you don't want a person to be on television watching television twenty hours a day. You want them to be within society and having interaction with people and get a few hours in, you know. Um and and within Facebook and social media, similarly, um if you're sitting there and you you're doing way more social media than you're doing interacting with other humans or doing uh being productive, then that's that's a that's a harm that. Uh, should be addressed. And we know that the corpor- the corporations who uh, created these systems uh, were opt- trying to opt out of the very systems that they created. If we look at face recognition as an example, um, the first city to ban was the city that started it. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, so we have to be very cognizant of like how much we engage with these systems, but we also have to hold accountable uh, the corporations who are using them against us and abusing us uh leveraging our data and information and so we've been working on some things with like the data union um james felton keith is a perfect example out of new york who is thinking about not only and i'm not sure if i if i'm there yet but like because our data is so lucrative it's literally the next oil james has been looking at ways that um you know people can uh, hold their their data for for resources and and say that you're not going to be able to leverage my data unless I'm compensated um, and so I'm not sure that I'm there yet, but it does at least deepen the conversation about how much power and control that we have over our information and the ways that we can start to address some of these companies and corporations who are leveraging that information uh, for nefarious purposes.
1: And then I, I have like a bajillion questions, but I'm going to let Brittany ask hers, but I'm going to just ask my last one um, just for now. Like, I don't know. Maybe I'll ask you more after Brittany's done. But um, you were talking also before, you know, I think one of the things that, um, at least for me, as I'm going in the street and, uh, you know, having these conversations with people and listening to folks... Um, we talk about, you know, a lot about um, building this, this bigger we, or we talk about building, you know, trust or building uh, coalitions. And a lot of people, well, just on the street as I'm going through, you know, there's like a fear. There's a fear of, of their neighbor. There's a fear of the, the stranger uh, that lives down the street from you or in your building how, do you have some kind of uh, support or advice you could give to folks um, how because you know we've been in this digital age and we we do have another divide right where the younger generations are less used to uh, dealing and face to face and so there that that's a challenge and we're older generations, are you know not comfortable with their relationships in this digital space how do we how how does one or people in community begin to build these relationships or begin to build trust that's a big question that i get as i'm moving where people uh say they are very un- untrustful so i wanted to ask you that cuz you talk a lot about building trust and building back these relationships can you kind of give a little bit of insight to folks who may be feeling anxious about that?
0: Yeah, uh, well, I'll say this, the pandemic um, uh, moved us uh, many, many leaps ahead of where we might've been without it. Um, We lost a lot of people and it was, it's a very painful and and it's a tremendously painful time. But what I saw was a lot of folks who were afraid of their neighbors talking to their neighbors out of necessity. Um, and so, you know, uh, I think that we should build on that, you know, um, I live in a building now I'm, I'm no longer in a house. I'm in an apartment. And I think about, you know, the fact that I knocked on several doors, um, in, in my apartment, just making sure that folks had what they needed. Um, and does it put, does it make you vulnerable? Yeah, to a degree, but what makes you even more vulnerable is not having anybody um, to turn to and not knowing who's living next door to you and not knowing who lives across the street from you. And so, um, you know, I'm not saying that we should just jump out and like trust everyone and everything, but chances are, if you know that there is somebody's house has been spray painted in the front with a blue marker, which, uh, lets you know that they don't have water on, they might be looking for water and you have water, you know what I mean? And so I think that, um, that we're gonna benefit much more greatly from opening up our eyes and seeing um, seeing our neighbors than we are of closing off, closing our blinds and acting like we don't know what's going on outside because there is no magic bubble to protect you from uh, disparities that are happening outside your window. And so you're better off knowing um, and seeing, um, and and even if you don't have the the resources to support someone um, maybe you know somebody who does um and you know the, I, I just think that we're we're gonna be better off uh being greater contributors to minimizing the suffering of others than we will be if we hoard and think that we can have the things we need and the folks around us can go without, and it's somehow going to make us safe. It's not gonna make us safe
1: Wow, i'm gonna I have like so many more questions, but uh, Brittany's been waiting patiently, and I know that she's sitting there gnawing probably on her pillow or a sofa, like a little puppy dog, trying to be like, I'm gonna ask this.
0: <laughs> Well, this yeah. doesn't have to be the only interview I do, you know. Right, can, right, right. Can Come back
1: on. Yeah, I, um, bring you back on, but I'm gonna let Brittany uh, let her rip because Brittany did a lot of really powerful research, and this is a very passionate. Um, conversation that we're having something very close to Brittany's heart and for Brittany's been a part of the podcast now is the two years Brittany you've been a part
2: yeah mm-hmm.
1: and over the two years Brittany's been like really really wanting to d- dive deeper into this subject and so having you here is it's pretty much like Santa Claus at Christmas yeah <laughs> Yeah, I'm so so silly. just, uh, so just want to like, you know, um just tell you thank you, you know, uh for for how much you're giving and, you know, just wanted to kind of before we dig deep into and people see the 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 how sharp you are. I just wanted to give a little bit so people could see how amazing you are, you know? So thanks for giving us a little bit about you and who you are. So, letter writ, Brittany. <laughs>
2: Well, I'm not going to take up... It's Friday. I'm not going to take up too much e- of either of your time. And I agree with Piper that, you know, I am a strong believer in privacy in general. Like, forget cyber, forget the internet, forget digital. Like, I just believe that we as human beings, as much as we need to be collective, is just as much as we need to be in tune with ourselves. And with that balance comes privacy. Mm-hmm. So I think that... um you being on the show means a lot, um, especially during these times, but just specifically with the work that you're doing in Detroit. It's just great to hear someone is doing such intricate work um, that matches the times, if I can say it uh, in a filter way. But um, I wanted to talk to you a little bit more about the ODB project since you, you you went into it. And I took a look at it and I saw that um, one of the things that you guys uh, took a lot of time in doing was doing, I think you did 61 interviews across, like you said, Earth, and Carolina, LA, 160, uh, 150. 150.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry.
2: But That's at the okay. time, uh, uh, the, I'm sorry, the document that I'm looking at, I think you guys were saying you had, you you got, you, you did a stopping point and you said, okay, this is what we've accomplished and we have so much that we've accomplished. Um, we want to take time to kind of share with you where we're at, which I think yes. is- dynamic altogether, And then through that, you share some of the interviews that you did through those three cities. So I wanted to ask you, what was that process like when you found so many of the similar stories through those uh, three cities?
0: Yeah, so you know it, there's this quote that I learned when I was um when I was young, actually in elementary school, and this it still sticks with me. Uh I can't remember who the author was, but the but the quote was a friendship begins at the moment when one person says to another, what you two? I thought I was the only one. And that that's how we were like seeing each other. We were like, oh my God, they they saying the same thing to you and Charlotte, they saying the same thing to you and in LA, and it's like you know, you can when you're organizing out of your city, sometimes you could be in a bubble, right? Um, and you're thinking like they're just doing this to us. Um, but that was really a rude awakening to see that there were community members across all three cities. So Charlotte focused on uh, formerly incarcerated community members uh, returning to returning citizens who were trying to uh, to re-enter into society. Um, and become contributing human beings um and uh la focused on unhoused populations uh, pr- prom- prom- most prominently in skid row and detroit we just focused on like low income um, and community members who were uh, just trying to you know, survive, not having water and, uh, and, and other uh, resources. And, but the running theme was that they all felt like these systems were extracting data, extracting information and communicating with one another, but they weren't able to get access to information to support themselves. Um, and if they did, um, and when those systems did communicate with one another, they were sharing the worst of each person. Um, And so that was keeping them in this looping cycle of injustice, Um, like this perpetual cycle of not being able to make a living. Um, And so we were seeing that, you know, like I said, that each, that they all felt like they were being watched, but none of them were being seen.
2: That's, uh, That's really interesting. And you mentioned in the ODB project about having, Um, I'm not saying it uses a different set of words, but basically a digital body, like basically um, all of us have a a digital body. Right. And, but, you know, specifically, I think someone said that you're either looked at good, bad, um, right or wrong based on how the data aligns for you to even have a digital body. So my question to you is, What is your thought on the, I don't know if you've seen it or what, you know, even if you haven't, what your thoughts are on Netflix's run of The Social Dilemma, I believe it's called. And Mm -hmm. from a scale of one to 10 with what you know and the work you're doing and the work that you've done for yourself to even get to this point, um, how in depth that movie went and was it good enough? And should we keep, um, I know I'm asking a lot of questions within one question, but should we keep on the path of, uh, providing a visual for people? What a, what a digital body looks like?
0: Yeah. Yeah. So social dilemma, it doesn't, it, you know, it, it, it it touches the surface and I think it's an important entry point, um, to the discussion for, uh, for folks to just be thinking of uh, social media in a different way. Uh, also the Facebook dilemma is another one. Um, but, because they don't show you uh, enough Black folk, uh, and particularly women, and I know some badass women um, in this work, um, I recommend that folks uh, get to know the work of Simone Brown, um, a book called Dark Matters. Um, There's also Dr. Ruha Benjamin, and she has Race After Technology, uh, Abolitionist Tools for the New Jim Code, Coded Bias, which is a film um, that Chronicles, the work of Joy bullamwini um, and the groundbreaking research around face recognition, um, and their Data Feminism, uh, which is a book by, uh, Catherine Ignazio and Lauren F. Klein, and, um, I have a lot of, uh, input in that book, and so do, um, the other folks that I already referenced, and there's just so many, um, others that, uh, that, Folks could look into. And so, yeah, I think that um, the social dilemma, Facebook dilemma, those films are important um, starters. But I think that if we want to deepen the analysis around particularly the impact on black people, uh, black and brown people, that we bring in those other voices. And there's so many other voices that I'm not naming, but um, those are just a few um, to get folks started, um, um, and thinking about these systems in a deeper way. But I do recommend that, that folks watch, um, watch the social dilemma and then move on, uh, to, uh, those other folks that I, uh, talked about. And you can Google or YouTube, um, uh, their talks, um, and hear some of the ways that they're thinking about this. That
2: was powerful. Thank you so much for that. Um, I'm going to keep, I have a few more things, but I'll keep it short. Um, We talk about in the ODP project, you guys doing work in LA. And before we started the show, I told you that I thought that it was kind of interesting. I mean, it it makes sense, right? Mm -hmm. Um, That California is the first state, um, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, that has a law that coincides with consumers' privacy. Um, and I mean, California is always, you know, trying to be ahead of the curve when it comes to green, when it comes to, uh, even just their, the way that they create policies in general, uh, they usually are ahead of the curve, but I just still find it with where we are, um, in this world. It's like, we're like, I told Piper last week, we're debating human rights and civil rights still, but then we're also debating digital privacy you know like we're living in these right now in a time of two extremes Mm -hmm. and it just is interesting to me that california is just like the only state that is even cracking the surface of having a discussion about consumers being protected i saw new york and then there was two other cities um from a i'll say from a state legis uh legislation point um mm-hmm. can you talk a little bit about that and why that is? I mean, Piper's going to say in short capitalism, but can you from your perspective tell us why that is and what you think about that?
0: Well, um I think it's important. So so California is a different animal, right? We're talking about that Silicon Valley. That's where that's where these har- a lot of these harmful innovations and technologies come out of. So they're on mm-hmm. the front lines of innovating and producing the harm. So they're on the front lines of seeing the results of those harms. Right. Um, and so it makes sense that they would jump out in front, um, and, and be trying to, um, get some of these things resolved. Um, but I will say this, it's, it's significant that it happened in California and that's going to have a tremendous impact and has had a tremendous impact on people all across the world. And so these, um, these data brokers and these techno technology companies, um, they have to abide by California's rules. So like, say you, you have a service provider like, you know, Verizon, AT&T, uh, even like Twitter, Google, Facebook, any of those, um, they have to abide by California's rules because they have people in California. So it's much easier for them to just put a sweeping uh, policy in place where they have to tell us how our data is being used, even if you live in Michigan and never been to California, because Mm -hmm. you're using a platform that also is being used by people in California. And so um, I think I agree with you. I think other states should definitely be getting on board um, and, and trying to strengthen this act, this privacy law, but we also should take advantage of the benefits that we've gotten from this privacy law. So you Understood. might notice a lot of sites that you go to, um, now ask you, you know, about how they're using your data. They give you, even though sometimes it's, it's a very, uh, not very, um, user-friendly, uh, uh, series of links that they take you through, but most have to ask you now, like uh, how, this is how we're using your data. Do you want to opt out of this? Do you want to opt out of that? And that's because of the impact of the California data privacy law. And so, um, so yeah, it's it's had a ripple effect on everyone, but it's also, I, w- I just want to say this really quick net neutrality because we, we lost on that. Um, as much as we've gained with the California Privacy Act, we've lost with the Net Neutrality Act, which is why you're starting to see like local news and other uh, online entities, um, you're not able to access as much information uh, free as you were before because the internet is competing with each other. Like they, they're competing for space um, and being prioritized and they have to pay, pass that cost off to uh, somebody and it's gonna get passed off to us. And so we got a lot, uh, a lot of battles ahead, but uh, I always say, I believe that we will win in the end.
2: Oh, I love that. Two more things: contract chasing with COVID. Is there anything that you've seen that you want people to be aware of? Do you want to talk about it? Is it a big deal to you when it comes to the uh, when it comes to the fight of privacy?
0: Absolutely. I mean, I feel like we're living in. I always tell people, I feel like we're living in the biometric industrial complex right now, where where there you know our our biometrics, our um, our data, um, our data bodies are being extracted for profit. Um, and it's unfortunate that something like contact tracing, which should have positive benefits, um, to helping to cure a pandemic, um, is, a con- is directly linked to, um, a-, a history of, um, extraction, you know, of black bodies that we have to worry about. I mean, we can't ignore Tuskegee experiment. We can't ignore mm. Henrietta Locke's, Like we can't ignore these historical examples that we have of governments, um, using our DNA um, and, and, and experimenting on us. And so, uh, yeah, there are a lot of policies and things that have been in, put in place since those things have happened, but I think folks are right to scrutinize and be critical about contact tracing. And I'll just say a perfect example in Detroit, the person with the contact tracing contract is Dan Gilbert.
1: He's not mm. in me-
0: he's not in the medical field. He's not, he's not a doctor. He doesn't run a hospital, um, and he has the contact tracing app. and so anytime I mean contracts. so anytime things like that happen, we need to be asking deeper questions like why would the billionaire person who actually was the architect of ma- mass surveillance in Detroit be the person who has the contact tracing contract? and oh where God. what's gonna happen with our data? Um, and so yeah, those are questions that need to be asked. They need to, those those questions need to be deepened. Um, and we need to we need to uh, figure out um, um, what our next steps are uh, with regard to that. But you're right to ask that question. Um, we have we have to, we can't just take anything at face value anymore. That alone
1: just is- real deep. quick, just real quick, because we do have a lot of um, national and international listeners. Uh, mm-hmm. Just uh, real quick, Dan Gilbert, we always talk about him on the show. He owns uh, Quicken Loans, um, Rocket. Is it Rocket Mortgage? <laughs> rocket yes. rock, rocket rocket uh, was it rocket it, companies the rocket
0: he's on a yes. he's trading public on a, um public now it's so it's rocket companies yeah. yeah
1: okay okay also um the 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 cavaliers is it yeah is the sports mm-hmm. team that he owns and also too so uh at one point i saw he owned about 600 million square feet of downtown but that article was at least a decade ago. So he probably owns two or three times that now. Um, We know that Quicken Loans was responsible uh, and and also in litigation. I don't even know if people know about that. It's actually still in litigation uh, because they were responsible, are responsible for the mortgage uh, crisis and the mortgage scandals that um, unhoused, uh, was it almost a third of Detroit? something like that, back in 2000. Yeah, they were one definitely
0: one of the players, for sure.
1: Yeah, and so uh, just wanted folks to kind of understand what that analogy means, you know. Unreal.
0: What's... Well, I mean, when I say architect of mass surveillance, a lot of folks don't remember that prior to Detroit police having a Project Greenlight or having a real-time crime center, Dan Gilbert had his own surveillance center, that uh, DPD would get their footage from. And so uh, I'll use a perfect example of when there were two young women who did some graffiti or what is called graffiti, but they did some some, uh, art on one of his buildings and he sent out an alert to his 2000 employees um, and surveillance images and told them to track them down of which they did. And so this is the type, this, this, uh, he is the person who was pushing for, um, for this type of surveillance in the city. And at one point, uh, there were businesses who were suing him because he would come and drill, he would have people drill surveillance cameras into the brick and mortar of other businesses, ones he didn't even own. Um, And so, so we, you know, when I think of things like that, when I think of, you know, the ways that he has pursued surveillance in the city and then seeing that he is now the person who is uh, also heading up and uh, erasing decades worth of work with regard to digital access with his new Connect 313 program, which he's raised millions and millions of dollars from. And I don't know that kids in the city are any further off um, with having access to technology um, and, and uh, internet since he started that program. Um, we really have to be thinking about what's happening to the data and the information that is being extracted and why the city is so freely giving away um, this type of power to um, this individual and his, and his corporation. And finally, yes. we talked earlier uh, in this interview about, you know, the power of words, the power of language. Uh, Dan Gilbert bought DictionaryInthesaurus.com uh, Oh my a few gosh. years ago so and he he was very clear to say that people who who own the the who have the power and own words shape the narrative and and uh and um and can dictate the reality and so these are things that we have to be paying attention to, and that's why things like river wise that's why us creating our own media, this podcast. Um, Those things are going to be really important in countering what's coming out of city government, what's coming out of the federal government, uh, what is being produced online. Um, You know, because after a while, folks won't be able to tell the difference between truth and fact. Um, Mm. And so it's going to be really important for us to to stay uh, tuned in uh, and to put out uh, the narrative from our own perspective. Oh my
1: God! Wait, hold your hold your next question. I just got a real quick question. Uh, The police commissioner meetings—you've been attending those. You've been, uh, I believe, uh, supporting with writing the legislation. Uh, Wow! And so I just can you just give us real quick the Detroit end of what's going on with our. Uh, Detroit legislation? Uh, kind of just an overview, like, you know, so folks could just get an understanding.
0: Yeah. So I, I guess um, one of the things that I'll say is that pay attention to, so it, it's really a good thing that we do have a, a, a civilian oversight body, the Board of Police Commissioners, whether or not the current body is um, doing what they're supposed to do is not as significant as the fact that we have one, um, many, many people across the globe in other states are trying to get to the point Detroit is at, um, by having a civilian oversight body. And that body came into place because of a federal consent decree, um, decades ago, uh, that was oversight over DPD, um, because of, uh, police brutality, um, and other, um, situations within law enforcement uh, what we're trying to do through the detroiters bill of rights which um i um am uh, part of a several organization coalition that has been working with council member uh mary sheffield and council member raquel castaneda lopez um in trying to put forward A Detroiters Bill of Rights, which is pushing for the charter to make some amendments, um, not only in policing, but also in civilian oversight. Uh, One of those things would be um, that they cannot be former police officers. Another would be that they cannot be housed in any law enforcement uh, office or building. Um, And another would be that they have to all be elected and none can be appointed by the mayor. And so we're trying to strengthen that oversight body so that they can be more accountable To the public, but it is important that we do have an oversight body. We just have to get them
1: to work for us. Okay, thanks for that. I apologize. Yes, no,
2: man. Thank you for that. That that is uh, amazing. How is that? What what uh, what are you learning about yourself as a writer? Like with this, I mean, is it that hands-on where you're you're having to come up with the language and things that I'm not? I don't know too much about creating policy, but could you talk about that a little?
0: Uh, it's been tremendous to be part of a process with with many organizations who co- came to the table for like 19 weeks to just draft the language. I will say that the analysis around racial equity that we chose, though, did come out of the uh, toolkit that I talked to you all about earlier, um, uh, the Centering Racial Equity Within Data Integration. A toolkit that I was in the working group and co-author of and so we we use that as a central focus um, on our uh, Analysis around racial equity because this toolkit is something that is being leveraged um, in various city governments to try and make sure that the data that City governments do have access to that they are starting to center racial equity and so we're trying to push that very very far um, and the way that we are trying to begin to leverage that um, is through this data, um, this Detroiters Bill of Rights um, framework. And so um, we even have people in Canada who have been trying to implement the toolkit and saying like, we have access to all these people's data. How do we enter um, into this this discussion from a racial equity standpoint? Um, wow. We have a long way to go but uh, it's tremendous that, uh, that we even have governments um, and city officials um, or city council members or, or anyone who's working um, uh, in companies, corporations, nonprofits, or city government thinking, trying to think about what it means to center racial equity and what impact that would have on integrated data um, and the ways that our information is used um, to make decisions about us.
2: Yeah, that's, uh, that's something um this is everything we've talked about really ties into all my amount a million thousand questions but um just uh, something that i find interesting is when we talk about um the I, I think it's let me look at my notes i think it's called the gdpr and it is the um Act that the EU um, in Europe put into place, I believe in, I think in, no, I think EU was put into place in 18, sounds very similar with what you're working on for um, Detroit in in the States. It sounds similar. I'm not 100% sure because I'm still learning about this stuff. But basically in Europe, they put in... Uh, the sack, let me take a look at my pictures. I'm sorry. Piper always gets, no, okay. uh, gets at me because she's like we people can't see you when you pause. <laughs> one second. Um took a st- couple snaps. Hope I can find it really quick. But they they basically have, they stand on three things that they're trying to do. They're trying to, you know, uh one, warn people that their that their data is uh, let me see if I can find it, is being watched. And then Mm -hmm. two, they're letting people know that they have an option to like basically like uh, get their data deleted. And then thirdly, like um, tell people that they can show people that there's justice, that if you find that someone has like basically with ODB, like if you're finding that people are using your data against you, there's things that you can do. And so through that, they're saying uh, with them having this in act for maybe one or two years, what they learned is, is that the more that they increase the transparency, people were still just clicking. People are so excited to just like get on pages that the more they actually ask people or told people like, hey, you know, we're going to like look at your data, more people click. Yeah, sure. And they said, but even though that's the case, they can't say that people just don't mind it. That means to them that they have to kind of find a better way to show people, like you're saying, all these links and stuff that they give you. They have to do a better job of delivering that message of transparency. And so then they said they also noticed, though, that there were more cases filed with how 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 many more people were like kind of seeing like, oh, my God, like my data is being used against me. And the cases went through the roof. So I'm excited for what you're doing and all the things, the results you've already gotten, because I think we talk about, we talk about um, our communities, but one of the pieces we also talk about is economic strength and how we're targeted and have been targeted from a consumer uh, standpoint in the black community. And how, if it's affecting us when it comes to uh, getting proper housing and getting proper credit limits it has to be affecting us when it comes to them targeting us and keeping us on a consumer or hamster wheel so there's so much that we benefit from by you doing this work and I just want to I want to say thank you and uh yeah that's all I have
0: I want to briefly respond to um to what you said um thank you so much oh Mm -hmm. I'm I'm so inspired by you
2: um
0: (laughs) Um, And I want to so back in 2017 through uh, work with the Detroit Community uh, Detroit Community Technology Project Detroit Digital Justice Coalition uh, We embarked on um, Guidelines for equitable open data, right? Um, And that Mm -hmm. was pushing for city government to be more equitable uh, with uh, regarding the data that they uh, extract um, uh, uh, What they're doing with the data, how long they're keeping the data Um, how they're engaging residents about what data they collect. Uh, And we published those guidelines and a full report uh, regarding that on, um, you can find that on um, alliedmedia.org. And the reason why I want to bring that up is if you go to Allied Media's website, and this lets you know how far uh, we have come, um, within that work is that now there is because of the work of the consentful tech project, which I'm actually co-creating, uh, co-creating a consentful tech guidebook with the consentful tech project. And that should be out this year. Um, this talk Yay. And it talks more about like consentful tech practices and like how we engage um, more consentfully online um, and how we minimize some of the harms. But if you go to Allied Media's website, there's a privacy browsing button, right? And when you click on that button, it lets you know we're not watching you. Um, and it says at AMP, we believe that any browsing information you share should be freely and enthusi- and enthusiastically given. Unlike most sites, our browsing <laughs> is set to private by default. And you actually decide whether you want um, AMP to track your data um, for the purposes. And we tell you what we will use it for. But it does not happen until you decide. And so um, these are the ways that folks can, even if we don't have the GDPR here, right? I mean, there are some ways that the GDPR uh, it affects us because there are folks who are from Europe that are utilizing some of the similar to California. Like there are some of okay. us that get affected by what happens in California because those businesses represent people in California still. Um, and so we, we benefit from some of that. But um, these are the ways that we can like, number one, implement net neutrality and respect it, whether or not net neutrality um, passed or not, Uh, whether Mm. we can implement privacy browsing, whether or not um, that is a policy or a law here or not. So individual organizations and companies um, can take it upon themselves to be more equitable and they don't have to wait on the government to implement a law or legislation or a policy um, in order to be more responsible, more consentful and to respect people's privacy. Um, And so this is a perfect example. If you go to that site, um, you will see that you have the option of whether or not you allow for, um, the things that you search through the site to be tracked. And yes, there is some benefit to being able to track how people view your site. You can make, you know, certain things, uh, you, you might make decisions on how the site functions or like the things that you put out, but that should be a choice and not a mandate. And that Understood. is, um, that's where we are.
1: Love it. That
0: is so powerful.
1: So we're going to have to bring it had- back. I'm like, cause we could be me and Brittany could be here asking you questions, and then this be twelve hours long. But I'm just so excited
0: because, uh, because you know, I mean, I get to talk about this stuff all the time with people who are doing this, you know like in the field, but Mm -hmm. I don't get to talk about this just generally, you know what I'm saying? And so um, it's really exciting um, that you all were interested. And I'm really excited at the fact that Brittany studied um, to the degree that you did and and are asking me the questions that you're asking. And so I would love to see you more involved with the DDJC. And uh, maybe there are some opportunities within DCTP and those sorts of things, because we would really like to nurture that, um, that interest. That you have
2: and, and so, our other uh in our engine i was just about to say that gybra, dude, he's, gonna, he's gonna listen piper he's gonna listen to this and and hate me like,
1: no <laughs> he's gonna have to be we, he, he's gotta be on part two like he really wanted to be on here but he got a new job mm-hmm. and, and he's been studying and his thing is cybersecurity, so he mm-hmm. was like, Can I have her number and all stuff? And I was like, cowboy. <laughs> no, he's so passionate.
2: He wants to help people. He's like studying cybersecurity. So he was so bummed he couldn't be on here. And he really wants to like, he's amazing. Let's be clear. He's a producer, he's a photographer, he's a videographer. And he's, he's a, a gen- sound engineer. He's a
0: Gen Z. Yeah. Oh. He's like 20. <laughs> nice. Well, there are so many opportunities for, for him to get engaged, for you to get engaged. Um, we're, you know, uh, Piper knows we're going to like start the DDJC. We, we took a little break, um, cause everybody needs a break. Um, yes. and we'll, we'll relaunch the DDJC. Um, and hopefully, you know, there'll be capacity for you all to bring your brilliance to the table. Um, as we begin love to it. shape what's happening, um, in the city
1: yeah we gotta bring you back but um before we let you go we need you to give folks all the ways in which they can like purchase something from you get involved stay on top of things and I know you have like you you have your books you have your retreat you have um <laughs> you know your workshops well I don't know about events because it's COVID but you might even have those on-, on Zoom and um You know, you have other ways that people can get involved, but tell everybody the ways they could like they could plug into your magic.
0: Yeah. So I would just say like, well, I'm on uh, on um, Instagram and Twitter. I'm at Combs, the poet, C-O-M-B-S-T-H-E, poet. Um, My website, my personal website is PettyPropolis.org, P-E-T-T-Y-P-R-O-P-O-L-I-S.org um detroit community technology projects website is detroitcommunitytech.org um and then odbproject.org is our data bodies website and so um oh and i'd be remiss riverwise is riverwisedetroit.org and so those are just some of the ways that folks can stay engaged with the things that i'm participating in Um, And right now, our fellowship, the Detroit Equity Action Lab, is um, actually looking uh, for the sixth cohort of our um, anti-racism fellowship. And so Mm. folks should be on the lookout for Detroit Equity Action Lab's um, uh, fellowship. And so, yeah, so you can um, follow um, on Twitter, Detroit Equity Action Lab, at at Detroit underscore equity.
1: This is so, yeah.
0: Did I'd like just, to end with a quote though, if that's okay. Yes, 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 yes. So, and I know a lot of people throw Dr. King out there, but I'm, I've i studied Dr. King much more extensively and I'm not romanticizing him to any degree and I've moved beyond his dream. Um, but there is one quote that uh, that is in The Time to Break Silence when he was um, organizing against the war in Vietnam, um, which, which most folks say that that's the actual organizing that got him killed, but... Um, But he had this quote within his speech that I I really have internalized, and that is the, we must rapidly begin the shift from a thing-oriented society to a person-oriented society. When machines and computers, profit profit motives and property rights are considered more important than people, the giant triplets of racism, materialism, and militarism Are incapable of being conquered. And so in 1967, he was telling us do not prioritize machines, computers, profit motives, and property rights over people. Um, Mm. And that is the moment that we find ourselves in, uh, in the biometric industrial complex where they're trying to target us with gait recognition, which is how you walk, or mass recognition, so they can see your face through a mask, or face recognition, or emotion detection, and all these ways that those uh, our data bodies are being extracted um for profit and so I think we have an awesome opportunity to answer Dr. King's call um and start to prioritize people again.
1: Wow. 2024,
2: I'm
0: telling you. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I mean
1: though you could run
0: for president. I'm telling you uh, oh you would be oh my God. I'll be I'll be a consultant. All right, there you go. <laughs>
1: Well yeah so we'll we have to bring you back we have to bring you back cuz definitely I know Jaira wants to talk to you I'm sure Deja wants to talk to you um we got to dig deeper you know it's it, there'll probably be more developments we have to figure you know schedule and figure that out you know what's going on uh with the policy and things like that so I just want to tell you thank you I'm so grateful well I'm grateful to know you and I'm grateful that you said yes to do this interview this has been so this has been like school and I think this is like pretty much one of my favorite episodes right now um this is the kind of content that we want to continue to bring folks so thank you so much I don't know if Brittany wanted to say anything before we go
2: I just want to say thank you and this is this was amazing seriously so I know our viewers will uh, love it. And this is, this is a classic one. This is up there. This is on the Mount Rushmore, the Pipe of Carter. And uh, <laughs> just thank you so much for your time on a Friday night as well. So.
0: No, thank you. Um, I'm I'm happy to have participated in such an intriguing dialogue. And I really appreciate um, you all deepening the questions. I mean, when I get to have these conversations, it helps me to think more deeply too. And so. Um, I'm really grateful for it and uh, look forward to talking to you more.
1: Oh, wait. You know what? I can't let you
0: leave. You got to do a poem. Uh, <laughs> I probably get you. Um, <laughs> uh, let me see. What's uh, I mean, you know, I'll say a classic Detroit poem. Um, even though, I mean, maybe your listeners haven't heard it, but Piper, you've probably heard it 500 million times. Um, but that's what I'm prepared to do right now, if you're okay with that.
1: Yes, please. Um,
0: we were supposed to turn our backs on you. Count down to your imminent demise, dangle you by the limbs of misdeeds. They wanted us to rate you inferior. Plagued by deteriorating neighborhoods and a convoluted history, you were never supposed to bloom from your ashes. A lot like you have been discarded like debris deemed useless to naysayers and convictors. Yet you keep rising, clinging to vitality. You refuse to allow statistics to dictate your destiny and the media will channel your journey and though some shall remain loyal others will mock your tribulations you were combing a young into maturity both your gift and your curse imported from adversity you've seen better decades yet you thrive during the worst of them your best days have yet to arrive and though some won't stick around to witness your climb or rejoice in your restoration your destination is inevitable You've been on the bottom much longer than most and the bridges your journey won't be easy to coast, but you will make it and bring warriors with you, armed with devotion. They will defend your dignity and honor your namesake. You are Detroit, the road to progression, the mirror image of endurance and you hold the key to taking back our democracy.
1: It's nothing more to say than just this has been the Piper Carter podcast on Detroit is different. Check us out. And the other awesome podcasts on Detroit is different.net. Of course, on all social media, Detroit is different as well as Piper Carter and PC.podcast on Instagram. And we'll see you next week. Peace. They try and erase us, rename us,
0: displace us, But we ain't faceless. Our bodies are here, bold, black, beautiful. We shed tears from the sweat of our ancestors, bask in the glory of their resistance. The blood in our veins is of legends, doctors, poets, musicians. We will not be nameless. They cannot shame us with their propaganda. Demand our silence through their genocide. We will not hide behind their trinkets, their choo-choo trains, and hockey rinks. We are Detroiters, the Black Mecca of possibility. We will not go quietly into the night. We carry the fight of Joe Lewis, got the Black fist to prove it. We are warriors and artists, the innovators they call arsonists. In October, they run us over when we resist them but we're persistent generations of resilience. We wage love in a world out to get us productive despite their insistence. Detroit, the city we won't let die, no matter how much they try us. Remember to like, share, subscribe, and always listen on Stitcher, Google Play, Apple Store, and Spotify.